Hello, friends. This is Andrew here, and uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Really looking forward to diving into this awesome conversation we had recently with Kurt Willems uh, on the kingdom of God. Um, before we do, wanted to remind everyone we're currently doing a bit of a fundraiser here, looking to raise $500 to upgrade our technology pay for our subscriptions in terms of podcast hosting uh, and continue to upgrade the listening experience for all of you guys. Check out the GoFundMe page, which we will have a link to in the show notes here. And uh, if you're able to give uh, a dollar or two or five or 10 or a hundred, anything you can contribute would be super appreciative. And uh, as always, thank you so much for supporting us, for spreading the word, for subscribing, looking forward to bringing you continually uh, improved content. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks. Welcome to the Lady Podcast, episode 16, and uh, we're here for a part two with the one and only Kurt Willems joining us from Seattle. Kurt, what's going on, man? Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Good. Good to have you. Steven, how's thing, how are things on your end? We're, uh, we're doing well, man. Kurt, you're our, you're our, first, uh, our first guest, to, like a repeat guest. Oh man, I'm like a twofer. And I feel like we need to have some kind of a prize or something. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's that's legit. <laughs> that no, either means like it either means like double credit, like you've earned extra stripes, or that it's like a watered down kind of a downgrade part two. They already know who you are, so maybe people yeah. just tune out at this point. Yeah. No. You know what? Let them tune. Whatever. <laughs> whatever tune I play. Hopefully they they uh, they they answer the tune honestly. So yes. if I uh, if I kind of stink up the room, you know what? stop the podcast. Don't even listen. It's not worth your time, but hopefully it's all right. Yeah. You guys are smart. So it's good. You guys will, you guys will carry this thing. Okay. We'll see. Well, no, I do want to put you on the spot a little bit. What's just kind of to give folks update on kind of what, what's been on your radar between church podcasts, new projects, what, what, what kind of things have, have been on your mind kind of front and center? Oh man. Oh man. Uh, so much going on. Let me think this through. So, and it's, it's funny. Like, I feel like there's so much going on and at the same time, it's, uh, been a slow season. So maybe I can start there by just saying summer was slow and that was healthy. That was good. Uh, we had a couple of trips, uh, but everything I did was family oriented for the most part. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, I was actually getting a little frustrated to be honest with you. I'd be a little raw here for a minute. Like I have a lot of things I want to like do, make, produce, create, whatever. And I thought, Oh, summer is going to be that season. I just graduated from that program. We talked about that last time. And I was like, all right, now I have that time. And then I realized my awesome wife and five-year-old daughter were going to be home all summer long with me. Yeah. And the truth is, I can have a home office, but you can't get nothing done. I mean, let's be honest. And so, so I I actually early on was like talking to to my spiritual director and just saying, Hey, this has been my experience. I feel like it's okay. But, and he's like, dude, just soak in it, just live it, just be with them. And, you know, uh, and I was like, all right. And I did. And it was, it was beautiful. It was actually ended up being, uh, exactly, um, what I needed this summer. So, so yeah, so that's actually still the season I'm in. Um, you know, besides that, I have, uh, some new things I'm working on in the writing realm, um, which is, yeah, pretty awesome trying to get together this, uh, finalized sort of book proposal. So I can't really talk about it at this stage, but this is your PhD uh, proposal or is that, uh, no. So I, I kind of want to write something more popular level for like just real people, not people who read things yeah. that aren't helpful. So, uh, yeah, so I'm working on a book idea right now. I, uh, just, uh, transitioned to a new literary agent who I, I'm just really pumped about, uh, named Rochelle Gardner. And so, uh, with books and such. And so that's been a real cool sort of thing. And so as that sort of unfolds, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of writing in my near future. 
a couple of podcast stuff coming up. I mean, there's just a lot going on. And now that I'm in this space between uh, the last school degree that took a lot of my time and now some open spaces, ministry and content creation are pretty much all I get to focus on in my professional life, I guess. And so I'm, I'm fired up. And, uh, this Sunday is our three year birthday at church. So there's all kinds oh, cool. of stuff going on. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. So Congrats. That's huge. Yeah, man. It's, it's good times. Very good. Well, well, thanks again, uh, for, for coming on board with us for a, a second round here and wanted to focus on something a, a little bit specific and for our listeners, um, you know, Steve and I have been talking about new ways to sort of frame out the, the podcast, even maybe moving to a seasonal type of structure or cadence um, or doing a mini series kind of here and there. And uh, it's a little bit tricky just given the fact that, you know, when we're reaching out to folks, potential potential interviewees, you never know who's available when and if it's like call me at the beginning of 2019 or call me tomorrow. So um, it, it's been a, a work in progress, but wanted to kind of, I guess, formally slash informally um, uh, intro a, a new series we wanted to do and wanted to bring you on Kurt to kind of lay a foundation for what will hopefully be a number of conversations with, with a number of guests over the next, you know, month plus T- to set it, set it up a little bit. I remember being in high school and, uh, at this point, as our listeners know, grew up in church and, um, by, by mid like sophomore, junior year ish, I remember reading uh, a book and I, and now I'm forgetting which of these two I'm thinking of it was, but th- there was a th- there was a particular book I read that that essentially folk helped me to understand or kind of said you know between everything that Jesus talked about um, love and mercy and forgiveness and justice um, and uh, what we may or may not interpret as salvation and and the church. Um, what Jesus talks about more than any other subject in the Gospels isn't actually any of those things, but is this fundamental proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God and language around uh, around that kingdom, government, rulership really is like majority of the content of the Gospels in terms of what Jesus actually spent his time doing. And for me, that idea of, well, what even is the kingdom of God? I grew up in, in the kind of uh, church environment and culture where kingdom of God was synonymous with our church. That, uh, you know, this, when we talked about the kingdom and what was happening in the kingdom, um, you know, uh, the books were called Songs of the Kingdom. The childcare was called Kingdom Kids. It was very synonymous. It was a very, um, like a perfectly aligned kingdom church, right? This is what this is. We are the kingdom. But in kind of zooming out more broadly, it's, it, it's pretty obvious that when Jesus talks about this kingdom, he probably doesn't have one congregation in mind, but he's talking about something much broader. And in uh, not to talk too long here, but in the book of Matthew in particular, we see that in, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that we ought to pray that that the, God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as in heaven. And when I started to unpack that, and I would imagine Stephen has a similar story, um, it changed everything. And becoming, uh, in the way I understood the Gospels, the way I understood Jesus and who he was, um, and, and what this this idea of the kingdom of God was all about became really what, what I was more excited about than anything else in my faith. So to set that up, we want to do this mini-series on the kingdom of God and um, purposely bringing in different kinds of guests from different backgrounds and perspectives and even denominations to shed light on what that even means to them in their church context uh, or theological or academic context. And so all of that to say, Kerr, we wanted to bring you in to give our listeners and kind of intro this series, set a foundation on the kingdom. Um, when Jesus is using this phrase, kingdom of God, and, and you know, you can use maybe whatever scriptures you want to cue that up in Jesus's ministry, um, what, what does that even mean? What, what, is this, what is behind this language? And help us to kind of understand a little bit of, of sort of the early, the early foundations of this kingdom of God language that Jesus centers on. That's, uh, that's really good. And for me, I, I'm going to resonate with you guys. I, I know, like as far as story goes, um, kingdom of God for me when I was younger was the, the means through which people become saved. That was the that was it. Kingdom is salvation. It's um, Jesus is king because Jesus saves. And uh, I still believe parts of that, uh, the save part, <laughs> right? So I still believe Jesus saves. Um, right. Uh, man. But uh, 
I certainly, by the way, anytime I say Jesus saves, two things come to mind. And this is whatever. <laughs> this is just extra credit for you. You said extra credit. Now I'm saying it. Uh, number one, I used to live next to a church that just had a sign that lit up at night that said Jesus saves. It's like a Jesus saves yes. church. So, like, on, like bar lights, but it was a. Yep. 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 Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah. 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 And on, anyway, I have fond memories of that. That was actually here in Seattle, um, which kind of blows my mind in other ways. Um, and so I always think of that. And then I, I always think, of, <laughs> Oh brother, where art thou? Yes. Where, uh, George Nelson is robbing a bank, right? And he comes in, remember Jesus saves, but George Nelson withdraws. <laughs> it's <laughs> like the best bank robber moment yes, for awesome. a Southern dude. Ever Bible sale. <laughs> what do you say? Steven? Yeah. I think that's the title of this episode now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus save a Jordan Nelson withdraws. Oh yeah, but the, the Bible sales and all oh, that's too Oh good. dude, Big Dan T. Anyway, Big one Dan of my favorite T. movies. Yeah. Seriously. So 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 yeah, like that Jesus saves framework, I think was it. Uh reinforced, you know, my senior year of high school. Uh great opportunity. And I, I still believe that this was a, a good kingdom moment was uh, Billy Graham came to Fresno. I think this was in 19. No, no, this would have been, you think this through, probably 2001, maybe 2002. Uh, and, and Billy Graham came. And so I was part of this Bible class at my Christian high school. And we all got certified as people to be ready to pray with folks. And there's like a little class he took. And, and wow. so I remember being out on the field and and uh, walking someone through the Billy Graham pamphlet of how to get saved, essentially. And, um, and, and so the idea was that they were entering the kingdom in this moment. And, and the kingdom was people not going to hell. And yeah, yeah. that's, to me, one of the things that I have now had to process. Um, and, and we're not, you know, I'm not even... I mentioned hell and we could talk about that in any way you want, but, but mostly what I'm saying here is, uh, it was transactional and it had a once in a lifetime sort of effect. And then you go out and do nice things. But when the kingdom shows up, someone is getting saved. That was pretty much how I understood it. What, what I've come to understand Hmm. is kingdom for Jesus is this massive big thing that Israel was waiting for. Hmm. And he invites his hearers, his Jewish hearers into something they've been expecting. Um, there, there have been people claiming to be this anointed messianic king uh, throughout the time of Jesus, after Jesus, and, uh, you know, some purport, you know, reportedly were doing some miracles and doing some cool stuff. And, Jesus is just simply stepping into a story and utilizing the language that Jews in the first century would have resonated with. They've been Mm. conquered and conquered again, and David's throne is empty, at least legitimately empty from a spiritualized standpoint. And with Rome as the ruler, Jews were like, we need our autonomy. We need a king like David. We need a king who can conquer. And so Jesus steps into that and says, I'm that king, except dot, dot, dot. And so that's the backstory Jesus is stepping into. It's about the liberation of Israel from Israel's enemies before it's anything else. And um, we can talk about what it ends up being in Jesus and Paul and the rest of the New Testament. But I think that for me is a very important foundational step and And so when Jesus steps into it, we need to start there. And then we can start saying, in light of the liberation of Israel and in light of the promises from the prophets in Israel's scriptures and uh, in what the apostles taught about this kingdom following Jesus and all of that, then we can talk about, so what is it? What is the nature of it? And if it's by nature a liberation thing, it cannot just simply be a transactional thing. And mm. so uh, that is uh, where maybe I would start, although there's a lot of places we could start. Hmm. Well, let, let's, Kurt, I'm curious to hear what you think about why um, why it's so important even just to begin with trying to ground the story in that context, because 
I mean, generally speaking, um, you know, I, I, earlier on in my faith, I mean, the purpose of the kingdom was, I mean, it was very much like what you said. I mean, I've, I've heard Nick, Nicholas Perrin, I think he was a research assistant for an NT right at some point years ago. Are you familiar with Nick Perrin? Yeah, uh, he's, he's followed up some of his work. I feel like he's done some stuff on sort of the temple. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so yes, that's my understanding. I don't know the details, but I've heard him describe the 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 church as like the the loose association of Vetus's Facebook friends, and <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was that was like uh, and, and and he's 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 calling it that in, in kind of a critique, like you know, hey, this is often how we think of it, but in a lot of ways, that kind of was how the language was used. It was like you know, in 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 the kingdom, things are different. And really, what I was saying was like you know, in in uh, you know, my my community that I'm in. Um, things are different, but why, so why is it important to, to ground what Jesus is saying about the kingdom in that story of Israel and in that time and place? Yeah. Yeah. That's solid. You're now you're ta- you're tapping into what I love. Come on now. Um, this is good. This is, this is good. So, so here's the thing. Um, when we read the Bible, if we don't read the Bible as best as possible, again, there's various levels of as best as possible. So there's a lot of grace in this. But when we don't read the Bible as best as possible on the Bible's own terms and simultaneously claim that it is authoritative in our lives, we then set the parameters within which it is authoritative, right? And so the the question, if we really believe that the Bible has some sort of authority— Right, which I believe God delegated Jesus's authority to Scripture. I don't think inherently it is the ultimate authority. I think it's Jesus, but but it has authority insofar that it um, points to to the purpose of God, the story of Israel, all that stuff. And and so because of that, uh, as soon as I step into the Bible and do not do any homework uh, and and start to develop ideology, theology. Um, practices and these sorts of things from the Bible, detached from its first century world. All I am doing is at best stepping into the, the generalities of Christianity, which are fine and good. And that's most Christians are there and that's totally good. Um, but at worst, what I'm doing is I'm bringing so much of my 21st century stuff to the text and then not just 21st century stuff, but the stuff that in my 21st century context-specific situation, my denomination, my political affiliation, my um, family relationships, my racial dynamic, my all of that stuff, I have all of that. I'm bringing that to how I read the Bible, and I've inherited this tradition, but often it's not from 2,000 years ago. It's from 200 years ago forward. And so the the way I'm reading the Bible is now conditioned by what did so-and-so say like 150 years ago, and how did that actually shift the storyline in ways that it feels like it was so long ago now? Because, I mean, 150 years, that's a long time ago for an average person, you know? Right. Um, but in the grand scope of like Christian history, that's a blip on the radar. But some decision that was made by someone influential back there now becomes what is normal, true, and real. That's that's a problem. Mm. Um, yeah. That's yeah. a problem. So, so stepping into the first century as best as we can with the resources we can honors the authoritative um, reality of Scripture um, and helps us to st- challenge the things from 150 years ago with the raw on the ground reality that would have been the first century real preaching of Jesus, Paul, um, Peter, uh, John of Revelation, you know, all of these folks. And so um, that's where we ought to try to start if we can. And if we can't, God's grace is big enough to handle our our both great perception and misperceptions at times. Mm. But that is why I try to root it there. Have you ever heard the the that example used where uh, the question gets asked? You know, okay, so let's say that you're on a desert island and there's no one there but you, and you've got a Bible, and and so you know, it, it's often used, I think, to kind of like to try to 
It's yeah. used, I think, for a good reason. It's used because, like, you know, the disciples, it says, were unschooled and ordinary men. And, you know, it's easy for theology to kind of become like an elitist, I don't know, thing, you know? I mean, you know, if right. you read a lot, then it's easy to kind of become like, well, you know, you need to read like me in order to become a real Christian. Mm-hmm. So um, it seems to be kind of a reaction against that. But it sounds like what you're saying is even in that situation where I'm on a desert island, it's not actually just me. It's like a whole democracy of dead people in my brain. Yes, uh, that are yes, dude. the democracy are, of the dead folks. Oh that, wow! Shout out to uh, to uh, 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 oh goodness gracious, the guy that wrote um, Orthodoxy. Um, he's another. He's oh, he's a dead guy. So uh, Chesterton. Chesterton. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, his yeah. democracy yeah. of the dead. That's his phrase. Okay. But, um, yeah, it's like all, all these all these folks in my brain mm. that like I didn't even be, just just the product of breathing in my time and place are there. Right. Well, yeah. and to flesh out to flesh out Stephen the example for those who haven't heard it, it's if you're on a desert island, you have a Bible, and you were just to open it up with no influence, quote unquote, right? What would come off the page? Like, what would people walk away with? And we and th- that argument goes that should translate to today. That you know, if you just read the Bible right as it is, and, and you'll get exactly read the Bible and do it. So anyway, no, that's that's fascinating. So within that vein, so kind of steering us back a little bit to, to, to the, the, the conversation on the kingdom, when you think about, so, so Mark chapter one, Jesus, we know that Jesus is baptized. And, and then in Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15, he, Jesus comes on the scene and, and it says that Jesus comes into Galilee preaching the good news of God and, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel or repent and believe the good news. So in the in this framework that we're talking about in that context we read on the page 2000 years later Jesus comes and the first thing he says according to Mark is the kingdom of God this kingdom of God stuff it's at hand it's now. What what does that mean in first century context? What's the full weight of what Jesus is proclaiming here? Hmm. Dude, dude. That's good. So so desert, desert island, right? Let's go back to yeah, that. Go back, come let's to go this. Back to I think island. this is good. No, no, no. Because I mean, what what does it mean for desert island scenario, right? You have everything that you need, um, you know, including the democracy of the dead. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, I, yeah. So like the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son. Um, you're not going to know in that moment that good news or gospel, what it means, unless you grew up Christian, but even if you grew up Christian, you're going to have in your mind, maybe the four spiritual laws you might have in your mind. Um, Oh, I don't even know what these are anymore. I I, the four spiritual laws. Cause actually from our tradition, like that's kind of a foreign thing. Okay. Yeah. The four spiritual laws, Bill Bright, I think was the man's name, uh, campus crusade for Christ. Is that sure. Bill Bright? Probably. Yeah. So the four spiritual laws, right? Like, um, God has a good plan for you. You're a sinner. Jesus, I, I'm, I'm butchering this. It's not this, but Jesus uh, is the way to access this plan through being saved. I, I'm, I totally don't remember the four laws anymore, but you know, I think I'm talking with you. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Thing. yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So it's like a formula for this. Right. And so when you hear the word gospel on the desert Island, you're thinking, Oh, so Jesus from the beginning, according to St. Mark is saying, here's how you can be saved. And Jesus Christ, God's son is the one who is making it happen. And, and I don't have a problem with that, but it's not what Mark is saying, you know? Mm. And so that's the issue, right? (laughs) Like, I don't have a problem with it. And I think, I think you're on a desert Island. You very much need to believe that Jesus Christ is saving you, (laughs) saving you from your damn Island. Sorry, (laughs) but you know, saving you from, I mean, think about this, right? You you need, you need, because otherwise you're going to start like drawing on beach balls and talking to them. But Castaway is such a good movie now, but it's so good. Wilson is one of the original disciples, man. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. But, but you get the idea, right? Like, like it, it, you need to be saved and you (laughs) need to be saved. And, and so desert Island, I'm not going to judge the person who on the desert Island doesn't know this stuff. 
You know what I mean? They're, that's silly. Like, and Jesus is going to be ministering to that person and coming through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Like all of that's going to be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, insights that you wouldn't think of may be happening there. I mean, it's beautiful. It, it would be sufficient. The, the thing is, though, that when you step into the first century, uh, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, is loaded loaded language. I mean, let's, let's start with, oh, so I mean, beginning is the word arche, right? And that is a word that means beginning, but it can also mean rule, right? Depending on how it's used. And often in the first century, it kind of meant both. It's kind of like, like, uh, the primacy or the, the, the primary thing from back there, you know, uh, Caesar Augustus would be, would make these kind of declarations that he is the first thing. He is the primary thing. He is the thing from back there, but like the thing that matters and counts from back there. Right. So this is loaded already. And then you get another word from Caesar Augustus forward, right? The good news, which is a Jewish word too. Uh, good news uh, has to do with those who um, are peacemakers in the Hebrew tradition, you know, the the one who comes bringing peace. Uh, but it's also a good news uh, that is, well, I would say counter to Caesar's good news because Caesar would also have a good news that people want to hear. Um, and then you get to Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is really Joshua. And it points back to the Hebrew tradition of one of the great liberators of Israel back then. Um, and Christ is really a word for the anointed one, which really is a word that we should use in our heads as Messiah. So now it's also linking Jesus to the Messianic. And and this is somehow God's son. And of course, we know in in the wilderness, God's son needs to be saved. In the uh, um, while they're making bricks in Egypt, I need to, you know, God is liberating the son, Israel. Um, so this language, I mean, all of those first several key words all have significance in the story of Israel. And so we then have framework for stepping into the 21st century when we're willing to. Um, ask some of those questions. Now, look, I, I'm not going to like, I don't want anyone to hear me saying, therefore, um, you who don't go and get multiple degrees in ancient history and you who don't go to a good seminary or whatever, like, like you're not going to get it. Um, actually, this is my, my heart and call for, for people who do those things to start talking to the church, start talking to the people who are in your faith community, stop being an ivory tower person, be a person who bridges the gap. And um, and those of us who maybe don't have that background, maybe maybe there are some helpful resources that can point us those directions. So, so all that to say, um, locating these things in the first century um, then gives us the framework for asking questions that aren't rooted in our assumptions primarily, but bring our assumptions to bear against the reality Jesus was stepping into and the apostles implemented. What uh, what were kind of the competing gospels in Jesus's time? What were the, you know, the the what were the versions of of the good news or like, hey, here's what. You know, here, here's how things really ought to be that were circulating at the time that Jesus is sort of confronting in his announcement that actually it's all happening right here and now in me. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. Yeah, um, and and it's really important, actually, because the competing Gospels would have been, well, you couldn't get around them. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're living in the Roman Empire, you do not get to dodge Rome's gospel. And and I think that's probably the primary one that would have been um, surfacing during the time of Jesus. And of course, we actually have a um, an inscription from one place that has this poetic sort of uh, proclamation of Caesar Augustus, who is like this glorious godlike figure. And I'm actually trying to pull it up right now. Uh, this is from something from the nine nine BCE, so right before the birth wow. of Jesus, and 
it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It says the most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning. Remember that word of all things Mm. for when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura or era. I mean, do you hear the gospel language? (laughs) Right. Keep going. Caesar, the common good fortune of all the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday. Notice Jesus's birth stories, the birthday of the divine Caesar as a new beginning of the year, whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection and giving us, um, giving to us and assuming the emperor Augustus, there's some brackets there, uh, whom it, providence, filled with strength for the welfare of humanity and who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, uh oh, has put an end to war. Oh yeah. And has all things in order, has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times in surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world. Here it is. The beginning of good news concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. I had no idea that John was such a fan of of Caesar Augustus. It's amazing. (laughs) Wait, say that again. I had no idea that John was such a fan of Caesar Augustus. It sounds like that's something that he would write. You know, right out of the scripture. So, so tell us again, sir, for anyone who missed it, what what was that you just read? Yeah, so this is an ancient inscription from 9 BCE. I think it's typically called, and I always butcher this word, and I'm not seeing it in front of me. Um, I had to, obviously, I had to just quickly pull this up. I think it's called like the pre- the Priini inscription. Um, but wow. here's how you can find it. You just go to my website. I know, and you guys can throw this in your show notes or whatever. Um, but I have a whole article on um, that's called the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus and the background of Luke's gospel. So that quote is there. And basically I, I make the case that it is the fuel for Luke's version of the Jesus birth story and wow. that the declaration of Jesus as being born a king is actually being subverted. Um, and this is the language that Luke is drawing from, whether it's this specific inscription or things that were floating around like it. That's so, unreal. Yeah. Okay. So, so Caesar is the one who brings this good news that the world was just completely going all to hell, and he comes in and he he puts an end to war. How? Because he's got muscles. That's the that's their gospel, right? Bigger so guns and bigger yeah. swords, and you end war. Well, first of all, he did literally end war because uh, they were at civil war, right? And mm-hmm. Octavian, who eventually becomes called Augustus, uh, is um, the one who wins the civil war, right? And brings supremacy back to Rome and stability back to Rome. And once this happens, now that they have a stable base once again, they start marching throughout the Mediterranean and beyond. And what are they going to do? They're going to say, hey, join us or we'll kill you. By the way, look at our muscles, look at our swords, look at our chariots, look at our gold, look at everything we have. We can make your life better. But if you don't like us, well, it's going to get a lot worse. I mean, mm. that's that's the the piece that Rome talks about. It's it's horrifying. It's and and on the street level, right? It's disgusting. Uh, soldiers are everywhere throughout the Roman empire at, at the turn of a hat. You know, Jesus mentions this in Matthew five, like, you know, the idea that a soldier essentially can, um, make you carry something a mile. And, and the, the invitation is, well, then go the second mile. And, uh, in ancient law and etiquette, it was actually considered harsh to make someone go that second mile. And so Jesus is actually exposing the uh, harshness of the system and, and saying, mm-hmm. you want to live like kingdom people, expose the harshness of the counter kingdom. Uh, and so again, what wow. you have here so is, 
march 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 kill 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 and uh when we're tired we still food from people because we can and we force ourselves into their homes for lodging and um, when we're sexually aroused we say hey person of lower status come over here we're gonna have sex right now and and there's no like boundaries i mean it is just you need oil oh, oh wait never mind sorry oh did you say yeah that? If you so, need, oh, oil. We need oil, we, uh, oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, so shocking resemblance is something I've seen before. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Tell, t- Jesus seems to parallel. So my understanding is Jesus is kind of paralleling a lot of the same language and even some of the activity, not to jump ahead in the story, but can you shed light on the, on the triumphal entry? So, you know, Jesus it, it, later is, you know, coming in to Jerusalem, presumably to his death, which is, but, but coming through the city and everyone kind of coming and, and worshiping this, this, this warrior or this Messiah from a Roman perspective was also a thing, correct? But of a very different flavor. Yeah. Am I totally off there? So my understanding is on on the, on the, like on the triumphal entry that Caesar similarly would in conquering a town would, would Caesar or the military leader would walk through a town. Everyone was, was required to come out and essentially pay tribute to this new, their new leader having been conquered coming in on horses and chariots and weaponry and, and basically the polar opposite of this Jesus who is poor, homeless, you know, blue collar Palestinian yeah. sitting on a donkey coming in and they're waving palm branches right at this guy coming into Jerusalem, almost in, you know, there's this eerie, but also prophetic parallel with, with what Rome would do as well, coming in and conquering new, new territories. Absolutely. Yeah, no. Um, and, and, and that's such an important story for multiple reasons. Um, there's some, uh, Hebrew scripture connections that are really important. Um, this in the Hebrew mind, I think would really indicate, uh, Jesus is not walking in just to show humility, although that is part of his story. He's also in being humble is also saying, I am a King who happens to be humble. Right. So this point of the story often is, Hmm. look how humble Jesus is. Well, it's actually, it's actually, you know, look at Jesus as the king of Israel. And he is the sort of king who chooses humility. You know, it's kind of like, uh, to use an example that gets overdone in our time, uh, the Pope, you know, is humble, but he's the ultimate authority of this massive denomination. Right. Um, It's kind of like that Hmm. idea, like he's the Pope. But he's this kind of pope. He's Jesus, yeah. but he's he's the king. But he's this kind of king. And so, so I think um, I think there's definitely some some important things there. But it also needs to be played into um, the the narrative that Jesus is telling in the Gospels that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And, and Jesus is entering into Jerusalem towards the end of his ministry, and he's demonstrating, I want to be your king. I want to be your king. But he's wept over the city already. He's, he's mm. seen where it's going, and he has to say, you know what? All of this said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. This whole thing's going down. So when you see it go down, run for your lives. Mm. Right. And so 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 it really fits this broader sort of theme of I'm the kind of king who is giving you the warning to get out of Dodge when you see armies surrounding the city. Uh, But I'm not the kind of king who's going to pick up a sword and resist like so many of you want to resist. Mm. Wow. Okay. so uh, kind of. uh, in that vein, what so we talked about the, the the Roman gospel. What were these? What were the other? What else was on the menu? Like what were the Pharisees saying? What were the 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 other sort of the other groups there? What other gospels were circulating about? You know, what God was going to do or was doing? Hmm. Yeah, that's important. That's actually really huge. So like. Pharisees get a bad rap, but they really shouldn't. Uh, Jesus is critical of Pharisees, I think mostly because Jesus sees Pharisees as basically insiders. I know that that'll shock some people, but but Jesus, in my estimation, and Paul for sure, right? We know Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, I think Jesus's theology and ideology most 
closely mimics the Pharisees. Mm. And the way in which Jesus is critical of the Pharisees is that they have just moved the the sort of like holiness code beyond the boundaries of love. And 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 so Jesus will say, you guys, like you're you've almost got it, but you're missing it. It's kind of how I you know, I would paraphrase yeah. Jesus. You've almost got it, but you're missing it. And here's how you're missing it. Um, you know, and he'll tell parable and he'll tell, you know, and he'll use language like your whitewashed tombs, your, 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 uh, outside appearance is that you've got all of your purity and your holiness together, but inside you're missing it. Right. And so Jesus is pointing them to this inward sort of like posture of love and holiness. And so, uh, the Pharisees want to see the purification of Israel, um, and and I think Jesus does as well. But the means for the Pharisees eventually become hyper religiosity, and Jesus says, "You're on the right track until you have pushed your religion, your religion to religiosity." And and I think Jesus is willing to say, "We need to be able to have flexibility and break these rules." Now, the Sadducees, however are the sellouts, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we have in the Sadducees. They're sellouts for multiple reasons. They they don't develop a, a thoroughly Pharisaic vision of um, Judaism. So the you know the the prophets are not inspired for instance the uh, the vision of resurrection is heresy to them. So, so you have in the Sadducees, all of those layers, plus somehow they become the ruling priesthood type people. And so they're running the temple essentially, and they want to say, hey, Rome's treating us good enough. Look at our temple. Let's just maintain the status quo. And um, this is good enough. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's. I believe uh, mostly Pharisaic zealots, right? So, so within the Pharisees, I think there were groups and subgroups, um, and the zealots were definitely a subgroup. And, and they're just like, let's burn this mother down, you know, not the temple, but let's like, let's pick up our swords and start revolution. slinging them. Yeah, it's revolution. Yeah. And so every time a revolutionary Messiah comes along, the zealots are like, oh yeah, let's do this, you know? And and Jesus is like, weeps for that reason. That's mm. what actually provokes Jesus' weeping because he weeps, he goes into Jerusalem, he lets his disciples know, hey, this fig tree, just like it withered, so too Israel's about to wither. This temple, it's beautiful, it's about to come down. And he'll multiple ways say, this counter message to Caesar is the wrong counter message to Caesar. Wow. And, um, here's my way. And then how, wow. and then the, uh, the, then you also have some of the desert fathers, correct? So like the Essenes mm-hmm. as kind of another group and what, how do they fit in? Cause I know their, their sort of MO was retreat, right? A kind of, yeah. a, we're going to be holy in the desert away from the madness. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And we don't know a ton about them, but what we do know, uh, some has come through the Dead Sea Scrolls. We think that was probably an Essene-type community that was preserving those texts. Uh, at least that's one approach. But but the Essenes, I think, represent the um, the stream of Judaism that says, that's all going to hell in a handbasket. Let's pull into deep study deep holiness. And we, you know, it's like Pharisees on, on roids kind of is my understanding. And again, I, I don't know much about <laughs> them to be honest, but that, that would be kind of the way I would, I would think about the Essenes. And, um, I, I think that, you know, ultimately their project bequeathed us some helpful texts 2000 years ago. So thank you for that Essenes, but they're Shout out to the Essenes. Thank you yeah, guys. You know, yes, but thanks. ultimately <laughs> They they don't become the Jewish group that lives on yes yes uh, throw up a <laughs> throw up a peace sign pour something out of course pour so yeah out. yeah so like pour out some good chunky first century wine yeah, grape chunky. juice it was grape juice um, and uh, yeah you you get the idea so yeah no yeah so definitely. so so Pharisees have a counter gospel to Caesar. Um, and a counter gospel to Jesus, but just slightly. And, um, and that's uh, very significant, I think, for the mm. story. They all want a messianic, uh, outside of the Sadducees, they want a messianic king like David 
to step in, kill the enemy, subdue the enemy, whatever that looks like. And so Jesus sees this battle and says, let me tell you about this battle that you all want to be uh, fought. It looks like being fought against. It looks like being executed rather than executing. And it also looks like um, depersonalizing your enemies from physical flesh and blood enemies. Paul will really spell this out in uh, Ephesians, right? And it, it looks like taking those visions of your violence and the enemy of human beings and now spiritualizing them to the powers and rulers and these cosmic beings that have corrupted the mm-hmm. nations. And, and so that's where the battle goes. It's not against flesh and blood, but that's not really popular. And Jesus gets killed for it. Paul eventually gets killed. I mean, they're all getting killed for it because they believe it mm-hmm. so much that they're ready to die for it. When you think about, so, so then amidst all that backdrop, we have this incredibly rich text of, of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five through seven, which you really, I've heard that I think some of the language I've heard around it, you know, almost the, it's almost like the constitution of the kingdom of God. It's kind of like the core teachings, foundational text, beginning with the Beatitudes. Um, you know, what I was going to ask is, so you have these vision. you mentioned the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, the, the, and then this gospel of Rome. Then there's this Jesus flesh out for us, Kurt, on, on kind of a, with some of these fundamentals, maybe in light of the Sermon on the Mount, or feel free to, you know, drop your scriptural knowledge here. Um, what are kind of the core tenets of of this kingdom? You mentioned nonviolence without using the word. You talked about, you know, the ac- being executed and the, the sacrificial um, love and life. But what are the other, you know, uh, things that we just read right through Matthew? Like, oh, it would, be, it would be good to be kind. It would be good to to, to not be resistant, it, it, you know, or to, to not resist evil with evil. It, it would be great to be the salt of the earth. But in the kingdom context, this is like serious foundational who we are stuff. Can you shed light on, on that and what really sets Jesus and this kingdom apart from his context? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that we got to keep in mind is Jesus is speaking not to Gentiles, not to 21st century Christians, primarily, firstly, right? Jesus is speaking to Jewish folks of all kinds of stripes in the first century. And they are Torah followers. They believe the Torah. They embrace the Torah. Torah, you know, the first five books of Moses. And then obviously the the, the story tells what the rules represent, right? And, and kind of back and forth there. And and so they have these uh, patterns of living. And Jesus is very clear. He's like, I'm not here to tell you that's wrong, but I'm here to augment that a little bit. And here's how I want to augment it. You have heard it said you can do these kinds of things. Something new is being born among you. When the kingdom is actualized, some of these things fall down. Uh, retaliation is one of those radical things. You know, in the in the Torah, there are commands that give space for things like stoning someone, you know, throwing rocks at them for yeah, doing certain kinds of crimes. And yeah. What were you going to say, Stephen? Sorry to hear. Again, like eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And Jesus says, look, I'm not negating the Torah, but I am going to augment it. You have heard it said in the Torah or in popular tradition, but I say dot, dot, dot. And so so Jesus is very much saying, here's how I'm going to move Torah forward with my followers. And, and Jesus is very committed not to, here's a bunch of rules. And this is what sets Jesus apart. And Paul picks up on this and the rest of the New Testament will pick up on this, is that the, the Torah and anything that has to do with ethical living that is part of this kingdom thing is always moved inward first. And so, mm. so he is picking up on something that sometimes is called virtue ethics, right? And, and Rome's virtue ethics were be strong, be self-controlled so that you could have a firm manly existence in the world. And Jesus is like, be meek, wow. be tenderized, right? <laughs> like, like, and uh, wow. yeah, that's my word, but like, you, you see that tenderized. I, I mean, I think, I think Jesus just gets it. Like, like, yeah, 
that's counter gospel already, right? That's that's new kind of gospel. And and so Jesus's vision is like, yeah, in the Roman world, a, a spouse, especially for men, like a wife is disposable, makes babies, can never have virtue because a wife isn't a man, you know, like, and, and Jesus is like, no, 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 like, like, if you're even considering stepping away from your spouse, it better be for unfaithfulness because that like there are no other grounds for putting a woman through that. In the first century, that's radical yeah. wow. shifting and augmenting. You can leave you on the same grounds. Yeah, that's like- yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And Paul just like goes nuts with that, like in, <laughs> in, in the Corinthian letter, right? Like, like it's just fascinating. And so so Jesus is is stepping into this very Jewish story. And so then Paul comes along and you start hearing these like hints of tradition. And of course, to, to frame it here for just a quick second, Paul is writing letters before the gospels are more than oral tradition. So let me say that again. So, mm-hmm. so everything we have from Paul predates written gospels as far as we know. Mm. And, and so if that is true, Paul has been given the stories. He's hearing them. He probably doesn't even know wow. all of the stories that we know. Right. He also probably knows stories that we don't get to know. And and so he's drawing from that. So you get to like Romans 12 and he's like, you know, don't retaliate. God's the only one who can do that. It's, it's so Sermon on the Mount. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like he's picking mm-hmm. up on these themes, but he's doing it through didactic teaching what Jesus does through narrative, what the Gospels do through telling the Jesus narrative. And so. This is this is earth-shattering stuff. And so Gentiles now are being invited into living as extensions of the story of Israel. And the story of Israel redefined around the Messiah. And when that happens, the end of the age has been launched. And the end of the age marks the beginning of the fullness of the kingdom. That's why it says this is the beginning of the kingdom, right? This is the beginning of the gospel because it's moving somewhere and in the gospels, you get hints like the reconciliation of all things, the renewal of all things, like very cosmic. And then in Paul and in Revelation, you get the clarity of what the fullness of the kingdom will be. It's uh, the recreation of the cosmos. It's the healing of the nations. It's the gates being opened in the new Jerusalem because there's shalom, there's peace, there's no more violence or war. Mm. And so there's this sort of like place the kingdom is going and there's a place the kingdom has been launched and we get to live in the tension between those two points in the storyline and the Holy Spirit is the one who pulls us towards that future by leaning into the kingdom teachings of Jesus and the apostles today. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a man. I kind of want to, Stephen, let's think otherwise. I, I kind of want to finish out that particular thought in this idea of kind of where the kingdom is going. And then in light yeah. of that, like what Jesus's vision is for that, which he starts to give us pieces of, and Paul does as well. Meanwhile, this the tension of the in-between, right? This is where we are. This is exactly kind of where we find ourselves. Jesus says, as I quoted at the beginning, that we ought to be praying, may your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And and yet Jesus said, well, the kingdom, it's, it, it has come. And we and this is where we get into this already, but not yet language of it's here, but it's not quite here. Um, so without getting into all the eschatology, which we think we're going to hopefully cover with a guest or two in the future, there is obviously this fulfillment of this coming kingdom, this heaven and earth becoming one down the line. What does that, what's the charge then for kingdom people? And maybe we can get more into that in a minute. Um, here now, praying that, like, why does Jesus tell us that's something we ought to be praying and living into? That's, uh, that's, I mean, I think that's the center of Christianity is the kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. I think that that reality, once you have stepped into the covenant, um, excuse me, the covenantal family of Jesus, uh, and once you have become part of the uh, family that Israel has invited us into through their Messiah. Uh, the the center is what does it look like for the outcome of Israel's Messiah's death and you know life, death, and resurrection and ascension? Um, what does that look like to be actualized each and every day 
on earth as in heaven. And so, like you alluded to, Revelation gives us the the visual for which Jesus prayed, right? Jesus says, right. on earth as in heaven. And so, Revelation 21 and 22 show us the city comes down on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and, mm. and I think what we get in the New Testament over and over again is this down payment language, this deposit, this first fruit language, that it is the Holy Spirit amongst the people of God that actually um, can tap into and release this kingdom reality in the world. Now, now the kingdom is bigger than the church. Uh, my friend Scott McKnight disagrees here, I'm sure. Uh, Scott would say the, the kingdom is the church. Um, and, and of course he doesn't mean the institution and all, you know, he's very nuanced. So, right. uh, give him a break on that, but, but I'm not quite there. I think the kingdom is everywhere in any way that God is active in the world, but, but the way that Christians lean into the ways in which God is active in the world is through the Holy Spirit. And N.T. Wright has done us a service by pointing out that the Holy Spirit is God's down payment of the future meeting us in the present. And so if the future kingdom, when it is all said and done, looks like a resurrected humanity for a resurrected cosmos to till the earth, to make this place what it was always supposed to be by an act of God's divine intervention and grace at the end, we are drawn towards that future every single day. And it takes a community of people to improvise each and every day based on the story before us to move into the story ahead of us. Mm. And we improvise together through the work of the Spirit yeah. by loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, following Christ wherever Christ takes us, and um, making disciples. Wow. I've got a question. Hang with me here for a second. So so Jesus comes in, and when he comes into this, and he says, hey, repent, the kingdom is at hand. He's in a context where, like, for Rome, like, the the status quo is fine. Like, so... Rome is like, look, might is right. We've all, you know, the world was in chaos, but now we've got Caesar. So we're good. Like we're, <laughs> things are great. Everything right. is awesome. Right. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees are like, no, not everything is awesome, but here's how we're going to make it great again. And it's going to be with religious purity and kind of, you know, having all these boundaries and really making it pretty clear because God doesn't want anything to do with you unless you're X, Y, and Z. And the, the boundaries uh, uh, make, it make it great. So mega, right? Make yes, exactly. Israel great again. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Okay. <laughs> T-shirts, fifteen dollars on the website. Here we go. <laughs> you uh, guys could market that. I mean, that could be your brand. Make there it feel great again. We'd have a bunch of Zionists. You, are, you are our marketing strategist. You're hired. Oh no! Oh no! Theology yes. <laughs> oh shoot! Oh shoot! Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. sorry. You got the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are like, well, okay, look, guys, let's let, let's play ball here. I mean, they've got the guns. Let's, you know, we'll. We'll kind of we'll partner with them, and together maybe something can happen. And after all, you know, it kind of works out in our favor, anyways. But in so it's in the context where there's all these different versions where either things are fine or there's all these other alternatives uh, to make things better. That Jesus begins to he brings his gospel of, of 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 the kingdom, and I think the first thing it is is an is a negation of the status quo. Like the first thing it is is like, yes, look, everything dude, isn't okay. Uh, you know, I know yeah. that you know. That this the way things are structured right now works for you people over there, and it works for you people over there, and it works for you. But everybody else, this whole thing sucks. And you know, I've got, I've yeah. got a, I've got a kingdom. Listen, I, God wants to make this new. He wants to bring something different, and it's going to be happening through me. Here's how it works. So my question is this: What does it mean for like three white guys in in our society right now, like the three of us? where basically we are the people for whom this whole thing works pretty well. Uh, what does it mean for us to become the signposts that actually the society, the structures that, that we are actually the benefactors of are insufficient? How do we negate that when it's already kind of bent in our direction? Wow. Yeah. So, so for me, it starts with asking the question. You just did it. I mean, that for me is one thing that I was not taught to do as a white guy. I was taught to see the world a certain way, have certain friends, have certain situations um, that felt like real struggle, and they were, but framed within the culture we live in, my struggles were not as conditioned, let's say it that way, 
as mm-hmm. they might be for others. And and so learning to, on the one hand, say, hey, the things I've walked through that were hard, you know, because people are always like privilege. Uh, let me tell you my story. I grew up in this horrible situation. Right. And, you know, that's my story. I had a horrible, horrible situation as a kid. And, hmm. and it took me so long to, to really understand this idea of privilege until it finally clicked that, wait a second, I had a, you know, welfare slash abusive slash Section 8 housing sort of upbringing. And I came out of it. Why? Because I had a broader network of white community people that saw me, invested in me in spite of my upbringing and released wow. opportunity. You see? Uh, wow. the, the difference is that that kind of network is much harder to come by in other kinds of communities because other kinds of communities don't have the layers of protection and privilege that I grew up having, even though it wasn't like my immediate core situation. And so I think the gospel of Jesus invites us to say, let's name those realities where Rome has helped us way more than we're willing to actually name sometimes. Mm. And, and at the same time, let's listen, let's hear, let's be willing to be on the hot seat a little bit. And, and let's not just hear, let's speak as we learn. Let's process this thing out loud. Let's be okay with being wrong sometimes, while at the same time, our heart and our energy moves towards justice for all kinds of people. Um, but here's, here's my last little caveat. It happens with the spirit. And, and that, that, um, that bre- breaks down walls. Um, because we have sisters and brothers that are in those kinds of communities that um, have something to uh, teach us without us burdening them with the need to teach us, if that makes sense. And and not only so, um, the Spirit reminds us that humility is a kingdom virtue, that um, identifying with the sufferings of a Jewish Messiah, that's a kingdom virtue. And uh, we're invited to step into that. And that's that's messy and painful and hard and confusing. Um, but it is uh, one of the tasks, I think, of being a kingdom person in the 21st century. And it's honestly one of the tasks that I'm still struggling to figure out how I actually contribute besides writing stuff or saying stuff. And mm-hmm. um, I, ne- I need God's grace as much as anyone when it comes to stepping into that. Gosh, Kurt, man, thank you. This has been such a like, I just I just love the conversation man I love talking yeah, with you do it all day long um, I want to be mindful of your time I know we're coming up on a hard stop here so uh, Andrew is there any, any other kind of quick things you wanted to no I would talk? just say as usual we'll point point folks in Kurt's direction and uh, always producing a, a number of awesome resources and uh, we appreciate appreciate your time Kurt this is helpful and for anyone you know for those out there that are like okay but what is uh, this has left me with a, left me with a million questions. What does this mean for salvation? What does this mean for like okay, what like getting my sins forgiven? Wasn't that a thing? Uh, what about heaven and hell? What about you know what this means in terms of my church today? My church never talks like this. What is what is uh, am I reading the Bible the right way? Don't worry, we'll give you all the answers if you pay thirty nine ninety nine. Yes, yes. No, it's uh, yes. Uh, actually, yeah, the theology curator himself will give you all the answers. Um, no, but uh, it, but honestly, we we're going to continue the dialogue. We're bringing other Good. folks on. I'm not going to name drop, but we have some really cool guests coming on um, over the next two months, and, and we're going to also just talk like flesh and blood, seeing this stuff. You know, people yes. that are playing this out in the world every day. Yeah. So, if I if I could just step in yeah, a little please. here, go and my it, my hard stop is softer than I thought. Not that I want to go too long, but go for it. Um, I, I simply will say, uh, first of all, uh, it's very important that in naming all of the things that we've named, uh, I am I am like committed to people needing to find Jesus and find wholeness and healing and restoration and salvation and all that good stuff. I mm. I am. Uh, an evangelist at heart in a lot of ways. And so uh, this kingdom then becomes a, a space where people say, you know, people aren't walking down the street saying, man, I really feel like I'm a sinner and I need to, you know, I need someone to fix that for me. You know, that's not, that's not the average person. Um, but the average person does look around and say, this world is a flipping mess. 
Like this, yeah. this world is hurting. And, and what if Jesus in reconciling human beings to himself and to God, you know, and to God, the Godhead, right? Like if, if in, in doing that, we now have a, a new set of resources for stepping into a messy world. That's what the kingdom does. It resources, it empowers. That's the inward thing we were talking about. It's, yeah. it's the empowering presence of God. So, so you can be the greatest activist in the world and do things that surpass a lot of Christians. And I often just ask the question, what if that great activist that we admire so much was a follower of Jesus? I wonder how that would have even tilted that person's work even more in a, in a beautiful direction, not to negate what they did, but I believe there is yeah. a set of resources that are unique. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that is going to be really cool. And it'll be great to hear you flesh it out with on the ground examples. There are some radical people doing some kingdom stuff. And so thanks, guys. This is this is so fun to sort of launch into something that's so complex and yet so human and so real. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Kurt, for everyone tuning in. Thank you so much for listening and uh, see you on the next one. Thanks. <laughs>